You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, hilarious mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests go to patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl and sign up today to join the fun strategic nakedness that is the friny way swore when you came to Athens that you'd never be naked again. Not ever, not once, not in public, not unless you were paid a lot of money. Enough money to rebuild the walls of Thebes. You came from the brothels of Athens. You came from the street outside the brothel. You came from the long, dusty line, where you stood all together on hot afternoons, naked to the world, free for anyone to fondle and touch, nothing between you and the filthy streets. The men called you names when they touched you, called you toad. Sometimes you believed if they knew what you felt, they would all step back in awe. They would lower their eyes. The brothel mistress would rush to swath you in blankets, lest your rage, your want, your fury leak through your skin and burn the world. Like the girls to the right and the left, you were a child of war. It was your parents who sold you into this life after the armies of Thebes came and after the walls of Thespiae fell, after your family lost everything. It was this or starve. You worked hard. You pretended to fall in love with every man who bought you for an hour. You found the hinges of their hearts and you pressed deep, blood and flesh beneath the chest. Men are human. Humans have weaknesses. They all have illusions they're desperate to believe. For an hour, you fed them illusions. 
You were not the most beautiful girl in that line, but you understood what the men wanted. Soon you had regulars coming back again and again, paying extra. It wasn't a kind benefactor for you as it is in so many legends. You were your own benefactor, sweating hard on your back, working their minds as much as their bodies until you became their addiction. The men who called you toad in the streets, you made them call you goddess in the bed. When you finally bought your own freedom, you swore, no more nakedness, not ever, unless on your terms. Now you swathe yourself in rich fabrics, somber pearl grays. You refuse to show an inch of skin that wasn't paid for. For those desperate enough, rich enough, willing to pay enough, you disrobe in private, piece by piece, make them worship at your altar. Now when people ask your name, you look them straight in the eye and tell them, call me Toad. These days they whisper that you are a priestess of Aphrodite, a disciple of the goddess herself. So beautiful you blind the gods. You must cover yourself in fabric, lest your rage, your want, your beauty leak through your skin and burn the world. Today is the Eleusinian festival, sacred to the dread Persephone. They say when Hades abducted the goddess, her scream pierced the world. You understand the feeling, a desire to destroy the world that destroys you, all at once, rather than spooled out along a hundred dusty afternoons in a line outside the brothel. People believe you are aligned with Aphrodite, goddess of beauty, but with Persephone, you feel a kinship. Today feels different, sacred. You wish to make an offering to the dreaded goddess. So you walk out onto the beach. The waves lap at your feet. You slip your tunic off your shoulder and the world goes hushed. Behind you, you can feel the whole city holding its breath. They are watching, the artists and philosophers, the husbands who come to you in secret, the wives who wonder what it might be like to have this freedom. Perhaps the gods are watching too, and your parents from beyond the grave, and your sisters who stood with you in the line. On our terms, you whisper, because this isn't for the goddess. It is not for the city at your back, waiting breathless to be blinded by your beauty. It's for them, your sisters in the line, the ones who didn't make it, the ones lost to childbirth, to violence, to starvation and disease. You let your tunic fall from your body, the cool air kisses your skin. They stand to the right and the left of you, invisible but always there, as you walk into the sea. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Jenny, that opening just, oh, that killed me. All of our cold openings, I love. Some of you don't like them, we know, but we're not going to stop doing them. But in particular, every once in a while, some of our cold openings really just destroy me. And that one did. I think like, this one and also Ancient Vampires Part 1 destroyed me. Uh, I'm so glad. I was going to ask you, like, do you think this opening's okay, Jen? I guess you think the opening's okay. <laughs> I think it's beautiful. We are going to talk about the Lucinian mysteries later on in the season and the cult of Persephone. And I just think it is so amazing to see this here. And later on, when you have them in their own episode, they're going to build on each other. Yeah, I gave you that little seed there. I thought you'd like that. You did. I love it so much. <laughs> well, so we, I just wrote a cold open that is very close to my heart because it's about my favorite Hetera, 
in ancient Greece. My favorite one, but there are also a lot of other ones that are really incredible. And we're going to tell you about all of the, well, not all of them. We're going to tell you about many of them today. And I'm really excited to talk about it. In our last few episodes on sex workers in ancient Greece, we talked about what it was like to be a sex worker in ancient Greece. At all levels, from the porni, all the way up to the glittering, sophisticated hetire at the top of their game. We tried to paint a picture of a group of women with more freedom and independence than most women in the ancient Greek world, even elite women could even dream of. But that freedom came at a price. Now, we're going to tell you about the lives of some of ancient Greece's most famous hetire, starting with a lady named Rhodopis. Rhodopis was a famous courtesan who appears in Greek sources. She lived sometime in the 500s BC. She was strikingly beautiful, and her name meant rosy cheeks. She was Thracian originally, but was said to have lived for some time in Necrotis, a city in ancient Egypt. There are a number of different versions of Rhodopis' story, one of which, told by Strabo, is considered one of the earliest versions of the Cinderella story. In this story, while Rhodopis was bathing, a naughty eagle stole one of her sandals and carried it all the way to Memphis. The pharaoh of Egypt happened to be sitting outside, administering justice, as you do, and the eagle dropped the sandal in his lap. The pharaoh was mesmerized by the beauty and delicacy of the sandal and astonished by this weird event. He sent messengers throughout the country to find the woman who owned this magical, delicate, beautiful sandal. He had a real foot fetish. Look out. I was going to say, he had a real foot fetish. (laughs) Oh, he did. When Rhodopis was finally found, she was brought to the pharaoh, who promptly married her as soon as he laid eyes on her gorgeous feet. I'll take everything north of the feet as long as I get the feet. (laughs) So, (laughs) that's what Strabo tells us about Rhodopis. Herodotus, writing five centuries earlier has a little more to add. He adds that Rhodopis started her career enslaved alongside the storyteller Aesop, as in Aesop's fables, and they had an affair. She was later sold to a man who took her to Necrotis, a city in Egypt where the courtesans were known to be especially beautiful, which is how she ended up in Egypt. It was there that Rhodopis met Charaxus, a Greek wine merchant known for importing lesbian wine, i.e. wine from Lesbos. His sister was the most famous lesbian of all, the poetess Sappho. That Sappho. According to Herodotus, Charaxus fell in love with Rhodopis and paid a great deal of money to buy her freedom. Sappho did not approve of this. Herodotus tells us that she wrote a poem viciously attacking Rhodopis, whom she calls Dorica, for stealing her brother's property and mocking her brother for getting involved with her in the first place. It's thought that Dorica was Rhodopis' original name. So Herodotus mentions this poem, and a fragment has come down to us today. Here's a translation from the poetry of Sappho by Jim Powell. Quote, Apropos of her brother's mistress, Aphrodite, Cyprian, let her find you at your prickliest. Do not let Dorica crow about him coming a second time to the love she is missing. I'm not exactly sure what that means. That's some shade. She's saying, you know, Aphrodite, don't don't let Dorica be all uh, proud and high and mighty because she's entranced my brother. You know, don't let her crow about it. I kind of feel like it's let Dorica find Aphrodite, who's the goddess of sex workers, at your prickliest. So Aphrodite isn't smiling with her on favor. She doesn't get to strut around acting like she's all special because my brother came to her again because Aphrodite is dissing her because she's prickly. 
Does that make sense? <laughs> Do you think that's accurate? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think she wants Aphrodite to be super prickly so that when her brother comes to see her a second time, he's like, not really happy with her because Aphrodite's not smiling upon the union. He's like, oh, okay, this is not as good the second time. Yeah, one or the other of those interpretations. Take your pick. <laughs> I feel like there's more to that poem I kind of needed for the context, but it's fine. That'll work. It was kind of fragmentary. <laughs> like a lot of Sappho's stuff is fragmentary. So one thing that's interesting about this whole story about this feud with Sappho is that, according to the sources, Sappho was mad because of all the money her brother showered on Rhodopis rather than spending it on his own household, and presumably he was financially supporting his sister because that's often how families worked in ancient Greece. The man was the head of the household and responsible for all the money, and if he decided to spend large amounts of money on a sex worker or, I don't know, gambling it at the chariot races or anything else that he felt like spending money on, that could piss off the women in his household because they'd be like, well, um, yeah, but you got to pay the bills. Hello. Like, we'll be out on the streets if you squander all your money doing other stuff. But also, any money that a woman made would go to the male head of her household. So Sappho is an unmarried woman had to give all of her money that she had and all of her property to her brother. So her brother spending large sums on a sex worker would have possibly riled her because she's not allowed to keep the money which she may have earned for whatever she was doing. Yeah, absolutely. This is a trope, by the way, the uh, women of a man's household being pissed off that he's spending a lot of money freeing sex workers. This repeats itself in plays and other original sources that depict the lives of courtesans, rage felt by the quote-unquote respectable women in a man's family, his wife, his sister, his daughters. When that man spends a lot of money on emancipating a sex worker, setting her up in her own household, and paying for her favors. It's not the sex that makes them mad. It's that he's paying the family's resources to this other woman outside of the family, sometimes to the extent of bankrupting the family. I mean, I don't think they had bankruptcy back then, but you, know, you get what I'm saying here. Oh, I mean, pretty close. If you went bankrupt, what you would do is you would sell your family into slavery. So essentially, like, I can understand the awful fear this patriarchal system has put these women into in a way. Especially if they can see the husband is terrible with money. He's not managing anything appropriately. He's lavishing large sums on his mistress. The lack of control, you know, like the sheer lack of control over your own financial life must have been really difficult for these women. And the effect is that it pits women against other women, which totally serves the patriarchy's purposes. Sucks for the sex worker because, of course, you're rooting for the sex worker to be emancipated. It's like, I want to root for the sex workers. I also want the women in the family to be able to support themselves. And eventually, yeah, if you can't pay off your bills, you would get sold into slavery because that's what bankruptcy was back then. That is what bankruptcy was. It was you sell all your stuff and then you sell your children and then you sell your wife. And then if you're a dude, you just get to walk away if you've, if you've paid off your debts. And if not, then you're in slavery. So again, women have no control over whether or not they might one day be sold into slavery by the dude they married. Awesome. So... We talked in our previous episode about how Hetire could represent a destabilizing factor in terms of a man's concept of himself as a master of all he surveys, especially all the women he surveys in highly patriarchal ancient Athens, because the Hetira was the one woman he couldn't control. But as single, unattached women who drained men's resources, Hetirae were also seen as financially destabilizing forces that could threaten a whole family. The fact that everyone was dependent on these men 
effectively pitted the non-sex worker women of a man's family against his favorite Hetera. And that seems to be the dynamic going on here with Sappho. Yeah, so after gaining her freedom, Rhodopis started an illustrious career as a courtesan. And since she was free, she'd been emancipated, she got to keep all of her money herself. Fuck you, bitches. She became very wealthy doing this, as well she should. Herodotus illustrates her wealth with a really weird story that I'm gonna just give you. Quote, Rhodopis desired to leave a memorial of herself in Greece by having something made which no one else had thought of or dedicated in a temple, and presenting this at Delphi to preserve her memory. So, she spent one-tenth of her substance on the manufacture of a great number of iron beef spits, as many as the tenth would pay for, and sent them to Delphi. These lie in a heap to this day, behind the altar, and in front of the shrine itself. So, Herodotus obviously describes this as a weird flex, just buying all these beef spits. And these would have been, like, really big. Like, from what I understand, it's like a spit that's large enough to roast a whole ox. And if you've ever seen an ox... They are not small. An ox is bigger than a cow, and if you've seen a cow, you know they're big. This would have been some real big spits. Let me tell you what. Beefy spit. (laughs) Beefy beef spits. And she spent one-tenth of her whole wealth on beef spits, which, you know, like, I don't know. There are cultures where this happens, but, I mean, to, to my Western ear, I can see Herodotus saying this is a real weird flex, but it's not that weird. There was a lot of animal sacrifice going on at these temples and a lot of the time it was oxes so they would kill the ox and they would roast it on a spit and then i guess i don't know what the process was but some of the food went to the gods and then some of the food went to you know priests and worshipers and stuff i would like to do a deep dive on this haven't done it yet so at festivals sometimes like hundreds of animals would be sacrificed so that meant they needed a lot of spits And, like, it wasn't just the spit. There would be, like, a whole setup for roasting an ox, you know, like a brazier, vessels, and other items that were basically pieces of equipment that you would use for parts of this ceremony. Other people also donated spits to temples like this. So this isn't strange. So that's my analysis about beefy beef spits. So what is important about this story, Jen? We've already talked about how financially, the way that the system worked, the man was just in control of all of these finances and the way that it worked, it would just set up the women of his household to be pitted against his favorite Hetera. And so it's basically just pitting women against other women. Yeah, what it is, is it's entrenching the roles of women in society. It's saying, if you want to be respectable, if you want to be the sort of woman who's above reproach, you kind of like fall into this sort of disliking these women with agency who have some moderate control over their lives. I mean, again, we're talking about a woman in this case who was enslaved and then was granted her freedom and then was able to work as an independent sex worker and a high ranking one. The sacrifice that you make as a respectable quote unquote woman, like the trade off you make is that, yeah, you're respectable. You've done what good women should do, but you're effectively powerless in a lot of ways that a Hatira wasn't. Absolutely. To me, it's not just the resentment about being able to control your money, like particularly in ancient Athens, like respectable women couldn't leave their houses very often without like a chaperone. Like Hatira and sex workers were able to walk and be on the streets and be in the public world. Now, again, there's a danger there because If you are going around unchaperoned, then men assume that you are potentially a sex worker and treat you horribly. Right, which is horrible that they treat sex workers like that. They are conditioned to do that by the way that the brothels were set up to be like free for all and you can just mistreat this woman for the cost of a loaf of bread. 
men were conditioned to see women's bodies as a public resource if they were out in public. And that's really shitty. And it's shitty to assume that a sex worker is that because obviously sex workers have bodily autonomy like everyone else. I shouldn't have to say that, but apparently I need to say it. I also think that one of the things to me that is fascinating about this story is that it once again propagates this sort of like myth that to me it feels very American dream, right? It feels like if you're good enough at something and you try hard enough at something, then you'll be rewarded. Well, no, I disagree. You know what it is? This is a Cinderella story, right? Like, Rodopis is just hanging out one day and the eagle steals her sandal and drops it in the lap of the pharaoh. Like, that's the story. And then he falls in love with her. So that's the Cinderella part of the story. It's really idealized. Obviously, I doubt that that actually happened. But that's an interesting component of this story because it does show a way that women could have had upward mobility. It's all about luck and being noticed for your beauty and being chosen by a powerful man. It's not about what she does for herself. She just got lucky and had a perfect foot. And this pharaoh had a real foot fetish. And then there was a, you know, there was a, a helpful eagle. She has no control over that. I think it's important that we've included it. And it's important to look at and break down. But again, the reality is everything that she achieves is through luck and having a really cute foot. This is a lot of the time in fairy tales how women's upward mobility is kind of described as acceptable. Stories about characters who are kind of downtrodden, but really, really beautiful and good, and who attract the eye of a wealthy man, and he reaches down from above and lifts her up. And that's the Cinderella story. And like, you see this repeated in romance novels. There's an old root to that in Hatira stories, where these women just have to be the most beautiful, perfect one, and maybe a wealthy benefactor will notice them and free them and set them up in a house. I remember as a child growing up as a young teenager thinking like this is how love works you get chosen all you have to do is be the most beautiful and the most good and the most perfect and the most perfect person for you is going to choose you and obviously the person who does is going to be the right person like which is really toxic in a lot of ways my parents didn't drill this into me at all like this is just like you know what I got from books I was reading and movies I was watching and shit this is a real trope and also like of course I felt that way like someone was gonna see that I was really pretty decide like my really big bushy Hermione hair and like freckles all my freckles they were gonna see the real me and fall in love with it and like what I started to realize as I got older was like I would rather be Anne of, Anne of Green Gables I would rather be someone with a lot of agency who someone falls in love with because they just can't look away from their ridiculous spirit I'd rather be Boudicca than someone who's passively waiting for someone to see something beautiful in them. Yeah, or maybe it's not that important if someone falls in love with you or not. Maybe that's an unpopular opinion, but I feel like that's a little bit where I've come to in my own personal life, not to overshare. But like maybe my value isn't just in the eyes of other people who decide if I'm worthy of love or not. Maybe I don't need to be chosen. Maybe I won't be chosen and that's okay. You know, like, maybe I just choose myself. I got you. I mean, let's be honest. I'm also a Leo and I need tons of external validation. But on this, I'm okay. I just need, I just need you to validate me. That's all. And I'll validate you and then we'll be fine. I'm Helena Bonham Carter. And for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. 
What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on to another elite courtesan of the ancient world. This is a lady named Nira, and her story is very much not idealized. We hit you with kind of a Cinderella story first, and now we're going to go into more of a dark story that's a little more gritty. It's a little more gritty, probably a lot more realistic to what life would have been like. So this one does talk about rape, and it goes into some detail. So if you are not in a mood to listen to that, just... Be aware. So Nira lived sometime in the 300s BC. We don't know exactly when or where she was born. And what we do know about her comes from the prosecutor's speech in a trial against her. So it's no doubt full of inaccuracies, demonization, and outright lies. It's a little like believing Cicero about the life of Fulvia. But this speech also gives us a huge amount of insight into the lives of the Hetire of ancient Greece, so it's an important document. So Nera lived sometime in the 300s BC, as we've said, and we don't know exactly where she was born, but we do know that she was bought in slavery as a young girl with five other young girls by a woman named Nicaridi. Nicaridi was a pimp and brothel owner who trained the girls to be high-class courtesans. After buying these six girls, uh, Nira included, she set herself up in Corinth, which was in fact known for its famous red light district, and told everyone that the girls were her daughters, which significantly raised their price because it just raised the ick factor, which I guess was sexy to people. Prominent men came from all over to visit Nicaritis' brothel, and a number fell in love with Nira. One of them, a famous orator named Lysias, paid for her to travel to Athens at the age of 12 or 13. Ugh to be initiated into the Eleusinian Mysteries. Yeah, it's awful. So Nero went in the company of Nicaridi, several other girls from the brothel, and a young aristocrat who was another one of Nero's customers. Yeah, so Apollodorus tells us several times that Nero, quote, prostituted her person to anyone who wished to pay for it. To a modern ear, it sounds like he has contempt for sex workers because they have sex for money, but that isn't quite what it was. What would have been really shameful about this to an ancient Athenian privileged person looking at slavery from the outside and writing about it wasn't so much the transactional nature of the sex. So to Athenians, the worst and perhaps most defining bit of slavery, and to be fair, like this isn't about what actual enslaved people thought about slavery. This is about what non-enslaved wealthy men writing about slavery thought of slavery. So take it with a giant grain of salt. One thing about slavery that they thought was super demeaning wasn't that it involved having no bodily autonomy, as we discussed, Nira didn't at this time. It wasn't that you didn't get paid for your work. And actually, there are some situations where enslaved people were paid for their work in ancient Greece. I don't think it was, you know, a lot of money, but it was sometimes it was some. The defining bit of slavery for them was having a boss who was determining how you worked. Because if you weren't independently wealthy and just able to lounge around writing treatises on, like, how to govern and what democracy was, then obviously you were enslaved. Definitely did involve a lot of making women's bodies free for everybody. That's fine. Well, that's democracy, Jenny. Come on! I'm sorry. I keep forgetting what democracy is. I'm so glad we have ancient Greece to remind us. So it was considered demeaning to free Athenians to work under anyone else's direct supervision. 
because this was a primary feature of slavery to them. If someone else is your boss and they tell you how to do things, then that is demeaning. I mean, what would they think of the modern office? They would think we're all enslaved. That's what they would think. Unless you're a gig worker, I guess. If you're independently employed, I think that this doesn't apply. Like, you could have your own business, and, you know, you could own a shop or something as an ancient Athenian and not feel like you're enslaved. But I've seen stuff written, and again, I haven't done a deep dive, so I can't really, you know, go into too much nuance on this. But from what I understand, a lot of Athenian people wouldn't necessarily work for a business that had a business owner because they didn't, they found it demeaning, they didn't want to have a job. So a lot of employees at, you know, shops or businesses or whatever, what in the ancient world might have been factories, would have been enslaved people. So it was okay to own your own business and be an independent contractor, but no self-respecting free Athenian would be your employee. This is why most businesses in Athens had enslaved workers, according to some sources. This is Apollodorus sneering at and belittling Nira here, saying that she didn't work for herself and didn't pick her suitors like a free hetir would. She slept with whoever wanted to sleep with her. He's calling her enslaved here or behaving like a slave. And it was an insult. But the reality was she was enslaved here. We know that. Yeah, like, and I'm not sure when he when he talks about her, he talks about her the same way when he's, like, referring to her working in the present. I think she wasn't enslaved the whole time, you know? So he's saying, like, she behaved like a slave the whole time. That's, yeah, that's the degrading bit. But at this particular point in time, I'm like, yeah, she's 12. There's no way she's independent right now. Sorry. No, like, at the beginning, at the beginning, you know, she's actually literally enslaved, so it's not wrong. But, I mean, what's fucking wrong is the way that he's belittling her for it. Yeah, because there but for the grace of your gods go you. You know, like, anyone in the ancient world could find themselves enslaved. Yeah, and, like, nobody has a choice in this. She doesn't have a choice in this. She's a kid being sex trafficked. So he also calls her a porni throughout the text, interchangeably with Hatira. And this is just to be clear even in the present when she, in fact, is not enslaved. And again, I've seen some historians use this as evidence that there wasn't actually any difference between Pornai and Hatire, or at least less than you think. A lot of them use this as a source document because Apollodorus is referring to Nira as a Pornai and a Hatire kind of interchangeably. My thought on this is that he's using the word porni as an insult, kind of like, you know, obviously this is a horrible word, but kind of like, you know, just flinging the word whore at somebody. I agree. And I also think like, again, what we're seeing here is Athenian. And that is very much in one region, right? And I imagine that the terms porni and hitare may have been used interchangeably here, as you said, because what he's trying to do is really like sully her name. Like she's a free person at the point in time where he's making the speech that all these things are being drawn from. And he's trying to like throw insults at her all the time. But it's possible that regionally across the rest of Greece throughout this time period, those words might have had different meanings in, you know, Corinth as opposed to Athens or Sparta or Mycenae. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you're really right because obviously ancient Greece is not a monolith and the way that the sex workers' situations were not a monolith either. Who had real fucking hang-ups about sex? Oh, God, they were so hung up about sex. Good Lord. Could you imagine having sex with an ancient Athenian? It would just be baggage all the way. Absolutely. Right. So remember, just to give you, just to give you guys a reminder, this is a prosecutor's speech against Nera which Apollodorus would have been giving to, I guess, a panel of judges or something. He was drawing on their prejudices to get them to dislike her and to get them to 
make a ruling against her. And I will explain more about the context of this trial. I just want to get through her life first because it, it happens later. If you read these sort of prosecutor speeches, Cicero does this too. A lot of it is just a complete vomiting of horrible misogynist or racist or xenophobic, what you know, pick your bigotry tropes against whoever they are fighting against in this case. Like, if you're a prosecutor, all you do in ancient Greece or Rome is just pull on the worst bigotries and the worst urges and the worst side of these judges to make them hate whoever is on trial. He was the lawyer against Nera. So everything that we're telling you has a real agenda to make her look as bad as possible. He's absolutely using, as you said, her lack of choices to demonize her. He's coming from a very privileged place of being able to say, like, all of the things that she's done, like, a respectable person wouldn't do. A free person wouldn't do. And it's like, sure, a free person wouldn't have to do those things. What Apollodorus doesn't want the judges to think is like, this is a woman who's got her freedom and she's had all of these horrible things happen to her. And and what he's working against is the judges having any sympathy for her as an enslaved person or a woman. And he's really fighting to keep anyone from feeling sympathy for her, which is disgusting. But anyway, Nera was working in Corinth from a very young age as an enslaved, most likely porni. Finally, two wealthy customers of hers split the cost of buying Nera from Nicarete. They paid 30 minae for her, which was a lot. A mina was about 100 drachma, so this would have been about 3,000 drachma. These guys shared Nira for a while, and then, when they both married, they allowed her to buy her freedom for 20 minae. Again, this was a lot of money. Not as much as they paid. She got a 10 minae discount, okay? Oh, isn't that nice? After however long they shared her for. Isn't that great? Exactly. But here's the thing, Jenny. Nira did it. She scrounged up all that money from her former customers in the form of gifts and loans, and she got her freedom. But part of the deal of her freedom was that Nira agreed no longer to do sex work in Corinth. So she moved to Athens with Phrynion, one of her besotted customers who had helped pay for her liberation. So Nira moved to Athens moved in with Phrynion, and started working as a free hetera. Apollodorus tells us she was living the high life with him, running around to parties and chariot races, drinking with his friends, and partying till dawn. But this is not such a great relationship. Here's how fuck you Apollodorus claims that Phrynion treated Nera. Quote, When Phrynion came back to Athens, bringing Nera with him, he treated her without decency or restraint taking her everywhere with him to dinners where there was drinking and making her a partner in his revels. And he had intercourse with her openly wherever and whenever he wished, making his privilege a display to the onlookers. He took her to many houses, to gay parties, and among them to that of Chabrias, some place that I can't pronounce. When he was victor at the Pythian Games with the four-horse chariot, and returning from Delphi, he gave a feast at Coleus to celebrate his victory, and in that place, many had intercourse with her when she was drunk while Phrynion was asleep, among them even the serving men of Chabrias. What Apollodorus is telling us here is that Phrynion used to have sex with Nera openly at these parties, possibly against her will, since it sounds like she wasn't really that into this. He also allowed her to potentially be gang-raped by a group of men, including servants, at one of his friend's parties. This ties into what we were talking about in our last episode about whether rape was an ongoing danger for Hetera at Symposia. And it's clear from Nira's story that it was. 
I mean, this is exactly what we were talking about, Jen. Yeah, and here's the evidence that it it happened. And of course, like, it's being used against her in trial. I'm just like, wait a minute, hold on, wait a minute. Right, this is somehow being used against her. And I think the reason it's being used against her is because he's claiming that she came from a foreign place and she was obviously a sex worker. Everyone knows she's a sex worker. Everyone had sex with her. So I guess, I guess that's why we should all judge her. Which, once again, you know all these judges were men. I mean, and I feel like the other thing, too, is the alcohol shell game, which we explored in detail in the previous episode at the symposia. It's like, as a Hitira, on the one hand, you want to get your patron drunk so you can flirt with all these men. On the other hand, if he gets too drunk and he passes out, he might not be awake to stop them if they want to do things to you that you do not want them to do. So you have to feel terrible for Nira during this trial, having her name dragged through the mud and also having her old traumas excavated in the most horrible way in front of a large group of judgmental people, probably all men, deciding whether to ruin her life or not with a guilty verdict. Anyway, Apollodorus tells us that after all these rapey parties, quote, Since then, she was treated with wanton outrage by Phrynion, and was not loved as she expected to be, and since her wishes were not granted by him, she packed up his household goods and all the clothing and jewelry with which he had adorned her person, and, taking with her two maidservants, ran off to Megara. Nira moved to Megara with her maidservants, taking all the clothing and gifts Phrynion had given her. She lived there for two years. But it was lean living, and she had lavish tastes. But the people of Megara were cheap and uptight. Plus, this region was at war, so everyone was kind of not in the mood. They were like, no, go somewhere else. So eventually, Nira met a man named Stephanus, and he became her lover, and begged her to come back with him to Athens. Nira did not want to go back there, because Phrynian was back there, and he had a violent temper. He was probably still mad that she left him and took all her shit with her. And she did not want to get within a 10-mile radius of that dude. She's like, no, 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 let me tell you about this guy. But Stephanus swore up and down that he would protect her from that asshole Phrynion. If Phrynion even dared lay hands on her, Stephanus was going to make him regret his whole life. Don't worry, babe, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to make sure that that asshole never even comes within 10 miles of you. Don't you worry, I got you, I got you. He talked a really big game. So Stephanus and Nera went back to Athens. By then, she had three children from different fathers, and according to Apollodorus, Stephanus set her up in a nice house where she continued to do sex work that supported the whole family, herself, Stephanos, and her three kids. According to Apollodorus, Nera and Stephanus even had this scam running. I actually really love this scam. I do too, and it's great. So the scam worked like this, okay? Nera would go out, get a client, bring him back to the house, collect his money up front like you do, obviously. And then just as they were going into her bedroom and about to, you know, do the deed, Stephanus would burst in, angrily accuse the men of adultery with his wife and demand blackmail payment. You know, I know in our in our episode we talked about Hamilton, and there this is literally a scene out of like there's this scene where Hamilton gets blackmailed for like picking up a woman who like is like oh I just need help I just I just you're so handsome you're so great Hamilton and then the husband just bursts and is like blackmail money. So the reason that this was a really potent blackmail threat is that adultery in classical Athens was in fact a criminal offense and. It's a little hard to parse. I'd like to dig deeper into this and make it a Patreon episode. I might do that. Anyway, it's a little hard to parse because the word in ancient Greek 
for adultery doesn't actually mean adultery the way we think of it today. Like the way we think of it today is somebody cheating on their spouse. What the word moikia, probably mispronounced that horribly because I don't speak ancient Greek, meant was actually more like seduction of a free woman under the control of a kyrios, a kyrios being a male master of the house. Women in classical Greece weren't legally people. They were more like property in the household of her kyrios or master. The master was the male head of the household, who could be a husband, but he could also be a father or brother or uncle or any other male relative. So essentially, you're not allowed to cuckold (laughs) another guy. Cuckolding could extend to your brother or your father or whoever happened to be the male head of house. You don't even have to be married as a woman to commit adultery. It's kind of fucked up. But adultery didn't apply to sex workers or enslaved people. A married man could have sex with an enslaved person or a sex worker or an enslaved sex worker without it being considered adultery by the ancient Greeks. Hence this need for democratic sex workers. Right, because they didn't want all these young men committing adultery. So these lovers of Nera's, if they knew she was a hetera, she was no one's property and they could just have sex with her. Yeah, because women's consent is not what's important here. What's important here is whether there's a dude in the picture who owns that woman already. Ugh. There's another thing about Athenian law that's important to understand here. Since Nera wasn't Athenian by birth, her marriage to Stephanus, if they were married, it's a little unclear, may not have been considered valid at all by the Athenian state. Like, their partnership would not be considered valid by the Athenian state because at certain points in history, citizens weren't allowed to marry non-citizens. So this scam worked on many levels. So she wasn't supposed to marry Stephanus. I don't know if she tried to marry Stephanus. I think that one of Apollodorus's charges is that she's trying to pass herself off as married to Stephanus when she wasn't, or at least wasn't legally, according to the Athenian state. Sure, but that was part of the scam. Like, Stephanus was also in on that scam. Like He was in on it, 100%, according to Apollodorus. So for a while, Stephanus and Nera lived together in Athens, with Nera supporting the whole family, doing her sex work, and running her fucking scams, because that's what she's got to do. With Stephanus, because he's totally in on it. But eventually, that asshole Phrynian showed up at her door. Because they always fucking do, like a bad penny or a bad drachma or a mini, whatever. Or a turd that you step in. So Stephanus was... What are we doing? Why are we telling these terrible stories? Why are you listening to us? So Stephanus was supposed to protect Nero from this guy. Remember, he swore up and down, listen, babe, if we move to Athens, it's going to be fine. That asshole Phrynian will never darken your door. I'm going to stand between you and him. I'm going to take care of it. I will take care of it. If this dude shows his sorry face, I, Stephanus, am going to make him regret it. But let me tell you what, Jen. So please tell me. Please tell me this is like the last one. And he's like her knight in shining armor with a foot fetish. Dude totally folded. Oh, motherfucker. (laughs) Listen, the more they tell you they're going to be the knight in shining armor, the more they're going to fold, kiddos. They got to tell you that and they don't show you it, then they're not going to do it. Anyway, so what did Stephanus do when Phrynian eventually showed up, Jenny? What did he do? Are you going to shatter all of my girlish illusions about Stephanus? <laughs> well, the two men had a gentlemanly dispute. And then they went to a temple to get this dispute settled. And the priest said that while Nero was free and her own mistress, the word they used here was Kyria, which was almost never used in reference to women in ancient Greece because, ugh, 
While she was free and her own mistress, she had to live with each man on alternate days. Each man, quote, shall keep Nira at his house and have her at his disposal for an equal number of days in the month, unless they themselves, the men, agree to some other arrangement. In addition to this, Nira had to give Frynian back all those nice gifts he gave her. Turns out Stephanus, the guy who talked a good game, who was going to keep Frynian away from her, just fucking wasn't any good at all. But he still prospers. It's fine because the dudes all get the woman that they're entitled to. And that's a happy ending. Yeah, he still prospers. He gets to keep Nira some of the time. Not all of the time. Some of it to run his scam. Listen, all the dudes got a happy ending here. I don't know why you're upset. (laughs) Jesus fucking Christ. What is happening? This was supposed to be the light and fun arc. Let's just cancel this podcast. We're done. We're done. So... This is how things went for a while, with Nira having to split her days between the asshole Stephanus, who didn't keep his promises, and this other asshole, Frynian, who had once raped her at parties, and then this lawsuit happened. Shit on shit on shit on shit! And so many triggers for sexual abuse. Yeah, sorry about that, you guys. I hope that you listened to our warning. So... The lawsuit, I'm going to tell you the background of why fuck you Apollodorus is telling us all this stuff here, this trial. So the lawsuit was brought by this dude named Theomnestos. So Theomnestos, he was connected to Apollodorus. He was the brother, brother brother-in-law, and son-in-law of Apollodorus because Apollodorus had married his niece. That family tree is a circle. Everything's fucked here in this story. Literally, if you're Apollodorus. <laughs> or if you're any woman at all. Um, so both Theomnestos and Apollodorus, who wrote and possibly gave the speech, had this long-running feud with Stephanus, going back years, which involved multiple back-and-forth lawsuits. So the details are really complicated, but the gist of it is that Theomnestos and Apollodorus have been trying for years to ruin Stephanus's life with these various charges that they kept bringing against him because of some feud going back decades. Some of these charges were quite serious and came with stiff fines. So far, nothing had stuck, or at least nothing had ruined Stephanus's life enough to satisfy these two dudes. So this time, instead of suing Stephanus, Theomnestos and Apollodorus were basically pulling an Octavian. They decided to sue his live-in partner or possibly wife, Nera. Octavian did this with Cleopatra. Like, he he wanted to get at Mark Antony. He went through Cleopatra. Yeah, he had to, because he couldn't go against Mark Antony. He had to go against Cleopatra, villainize her, and make everyone believe that Cleopatra had turned this great Roman statesman into something debauched. As opposed to understanding, Mark Antony vomited in the Senate. Well, look, Mark Antony, was, he was a war hero. He was kind of invulnerable. The public wasn't going to turn on him. So he, he made them turn on the closest person to Mark Antony, who was a foreigner and a woman. All very demonizable, if that's a word. I just invented it. Now it's a word. To the ancient Romans. So that's how this works, kids. <laughs> anyway, the charges were that Nera, a foreign woman, again, remember, foreigner, had claimed the status of Athenian citizenship and had been living openly as Stephanus's wife. Which was a lie and also against the law. Stephanus was an Athenian citizen, and at this time, as we've said, it was illegal for Athenian citizens to marry non-Athenians. 
Nero was also accused of passing off her daughter Fano as Stephanus's daughter, which she wasn't, and marrying her off to an Athenian citizen. All of these things were also against the law. So we don't know what the result of this lawsuit was, if Nero was convicted of anything, and if so, what her punishment was. If she'd been convicted, it was possible she could have been sold back into slavery and all of her property would have been sold off as well. Unfortunately, Nira's ultimate fate will have to remain a mystery. So Jenny, we included this story because we wanted to like, we wanted to show our listeners what these different bits and pieces of these lives of different Hittire tell us about the ancient world. So what does this story tell us? This one tells us the most. It tells me the most about what a Hatira's life was like. A lot of the stories we give you are kind of generalized and idealized, and Nira's really, really wasn't. So that's why I think she's so important. First and foremost, there's a confirmation that rape was a real threat at Symposia. Another thing I'm interested in is if someone wants to get out of the life. There were some barriers to that. This is a story about a sex worker moving to a different city to escape her past and her past catching up to her. Even if she wasn't a sex worker at the previous city, she gets accused of being a sex worker. Because we actually, like, we can't even trust Apollodorus to be right about whether she was a sex worker. He's just trying to demonize her. But if she was, that past is catching up to her. That's a challenge of sex workers transitioning out of sex work. Sure, you can marry a client. Like, you can marry a, a Stephanus. I don't know if they actually were married, but you can have a live-in partnership with a client. But if you're foreign, and you're living in Athens, your marriage would be illegal and you could get in legal trouble for it, which would mean that you would get sold into slavery if you were found guilty. That's super scary. Considering someone like Nira worked her way out of being enslaved, the idea that she has found, number one, she's torn between two horrible partners, two horrible Athenian men, one who is kind of using her to run this scam that we don't 100% know how willing or unwilling she was in it, I like to believe she enjoyed the scam. Stephanus absolutely could have been exploiting her as well, but from what I understand, at least if you take what we're reading at face value, at least the Stephanus relationship was a consensual relationship. Yeah, but the Phrynian relationship may have started as consensual, but we know by the end it was not. So I feel like she's torn between these two men who have a lot of power, and she, even though she's a freed woman and supposed to be her own master, is still somehow in their control. And it is one of those things that's absolutely horrifying. She spent her entire life trying to get out of a situation where where she has no bodily autonomy. And what she finds is that even not legally being able to be married to these men, they still have so much power over her. She can be determined to be her own Kyria, her own mistress, and still have no bodily autonomy. The priests decide that these men can just share her as they wish. Yeah. It feels really real that this could happen to a Hetira. Or, you know, a woman who people think is a Hetera. Another thing that I see in the nearest story is that if your husband is a wealthy, prominent man in Athenian society, you know, you want to catch that white whale, right, as the Hetera. You want to catch that guy who can just support you the rest of your life. That guy is going to be political, probably. He's going to be pulling the levers of power in classical Athens, and he's probably going to have some enemies. And those enemies are going to see you as a legal target. That means you're going to get dragged into these lawsuits. And another thing is that if you happen to be a foreign woman who is a partner to an Athenian citizen, you're vulnerable to this kind of bullshit, even if you weren't a sex worker, as proving who is and isn't a sex worker in ancient Athens often came down to hearsay and the stuff wasn't documented. And yeah, I don't know how you would even prove that. I guess you could prove whether or not you've been enslaved if 
potentially you had been branded or had a tattoo. I'm not 100% sure exactly how that worked. So I know in some in some cultures, and I know this about Delphi in particular, when you were given your freedom by your master, sometimes they would go to like a god's temple. And I know this happened at Delphi and they would give you to the god and that would be how the god would give you your freedom. And they've seen it in the archaeology. They've seen like this person has been given to the god Apollo who gives her her freedom. So you might be able to go back to a temple and see on the wall, literally, an enslaved person who's been given their freedom via a temple. Some sex workers didn't start enslaved, so that doesn't necessarily prove anything. So let's talk about a new sex worker. Her name is Nathena. I love Nathena. Nathena was a very sought-after Hetera, also living in the 300s BC in Athens. She was extremely popular. She had a number of prominent lovers, including Diphilus, a noted comedic playwright. And instead of just attending symposia, Nathena threw her own parties. She's throwing her own parties. She's in control of the social interactions here. She is the person in control of how strong the wine is. She's going to mix that wine. She's her own symposiarch. Fuck you, dudes. So this would have been a very sharp departure from normal behavior in classical Athens. Women weren't even supposed to attend symposia. Hetire were already outside of the norm here because they attended symposia. But Nathena did not just attend symposia. She threw her own fucking party. She threw her own. So word is, Nathena even wrote a book about etiquette at her parties called Rules for Dining in Company. It was said to have been written in the style of a philosophical treatise because that's the kind of badass she was. She was like, oh, smart man, I'm going to show you how ridiculous your philosophical treatise are by me writing about the etiquette of attending one of my symposia in your style, you pompous jerks. So Hetire were supposed to be the sparkling life of the party, flattering powerful men and putting them at ease while entertaining them. Nathena was certainly known for her wit, but she was not the sweet, flattering type of Hetera. She was known to make vicious fun of her guests and regularly match wits with them, leaving them as bleeding piles of humiliation on the floor. Dudes lined up for miles to get eviscerated by this woman. Damn straight they did. They were like, please eviscerate me, please, Nathena. That's what they paid her for, and that is what she gave them. Use your tongue to eviscerate me in public, Nathena, please. That's a real need some people have. And they got what they needed because she gave it to them. It's a service. I feel like this is the job I'd want to have, but I'm not witty enough to do it. I feel like you'd be kind of a verbal dominatrix. I mean, is that a thing? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nathena did it. She had this racket going. So she had several daughters, and it's said that her daughters helped her throw her parties and became noted extremely witty and snarky Hatire in their own right, as did Nathena's granddaughter, whose name was Nathenon. Nathena's parties were lavish. They were legendary. Invitations were as valuable as diamonds, darling. And if you weren't dripping in diamonds, you were not going to attend my party. Anyone who got an invite to Nathena's parties had to match wits with her and play by Nathena's fucking goddamn rules. They were her rules. It was her house. People, like I said, were lining up to have this woman insult and humiliate them because that was what they wanted. Athenius has written down some of her wittiest remarks, and I think he got them all wrong and fucking botched them up. I'm just going to read you some of the things he said. So 
De Phyllis, the playwright, who was one of her prominent lovers, was once drinking with Nathena. Said he, Your cup is somewhat cold, Nathena. And she replied, "'Tis no great wonder, De Phyllis, for we take care to put some of your plays in it." <laughs> so De Phyllis, the playwright, by the way, she made ruthless fun of him all the time, and he got back at her by totally lampooning her in his comic plays. It sounds like a great relationship. That was their jam. So Nathena once was supping with Dexithia, who was a courtesan as well as she. And when Dexithia put aside with care nearly all the daintiest morsels for her mother, she said, I swear by Artemis, had I known how you went on, Dexithia, I would rather have gone to supper with your mother than you. I mean, ouch. Taking home a doggy bag. It's what you do. Exactly. I also wonder if Dexithia was kind of maybe going on and on about her mother and not enjoying herself the way Nathina wanted her to. I don't know. It's tough to know. We don't know what their situation was. We're making up this conversation in our heads. Dexithia might have been really boring. I'm like, oh, my mother would love this and this and this. And Nathina might have been like, dude, you're at my symposia. Invitations here are so rare. Just enjoy the food. You're supposed to be witty. You're supposed to be sparkling. If you can't manage that, then I will find someone else who can. And your mother can enjoy her doggy bag, but you're not coming back here again. But maybe your mother can because I hear she's kind of witty. I hear she might be fun. Yeah. So here's, here's, here's one of Nathina's witticisms that I just love. On one occasion, some men were drinking in her house and were eating some lentils dressed with onions. As the maidservant was clearing the table and putting some of the lentils in her bosom, Nathina said, she is thinking of making some bosom lentils. That is something I would absolutely say and do. <laughs> Why would anyone put lentils in their bosom, number one? She was thinking of making some bosom lentils. Like, if she plants them in there, will they grow out of her bosoms? Would you like to sup them from her bosoms? I don't know. I get it. I get it. She was obviously well endowed, or whatever dress she was wearing, she was like, what can I put down there? I get it. Bosom lentils. I will put them in there. Make of that what you will, you guys. So I don't know, maybe there's something lost in translation with Nathena's wit. I believe she was probably funnier than this, or it was funnier in ancient Greek. I don't know. Or maybe it's just, it's just, this is what it is. This is what she talked like. My grandparents were from Italy, which is not so far away from Greece. But there is an ancient sort of tradition about lentils, especially if you have them at New Year's Eve, being good for like giving you luck and money in the year to come. So maybe if you put them in your bosom, you just have a lucky bosom. I don't know. Look, we've all been there. We all wanted to have a lucky bosom at some point. So what's important about Nathena, Jen, do you think? Well, I think that we wanted to include her because Nathena is known not for her beauty, not for her Cinderella story, not for running a great con, but for kind of being really sassy and for kind of putting down her clients and being really fun and witty and being this kind of Hitara who um, is mean and still gets away and makes a lot of money. She gets the fuck away with it. And I bet some Hatire did. I bet this was, for some Hatire, this was their thing, was being the mean one. You know, that people loved that. Totally. She was the mean girl. And people were like, I love it, please. And she was smart. She's known for her, for her wit. She's not being sort of praised for her looks or 
her prowess in the bedroom. She's being praised for her wit and her intelligence and her ability to throw parties and just be this sparkling, beautiful presence. He's also eviscerating and dominating. And I just love her. I love her. Well, I think that's the key thing about Nathina that I think is important is that she dominates. You know, she dominates the party scene. She dominates the men that she's with. She's in charge. It's an example of how it might look if a Hatira is really, she just decides she's in charge. Fuck you all. These are my parties. These are my rules. Number one, don't be rapey. Number two, if you're not wearing diamonds, I don't know why you're here. Number three, if you're not fun, I don't know why you're here. You made it up, but I feel like those are right. Great rules for a party. (laughs) Our next Hatira is a young man called Fado of Ellis. So it's easy to assume that all Hatire were women, and probably most were, but guys could be Hatire as well. And one of the most notorious was a young lad named Beto of Ellis. Beto was born in the very late 400s BC. He lived a few generations before the ladies we just told you about. He was a native of the city of Ellis in the southern Peloponnese. In his childhood, he was a war captive. It's believed that the war in question was the one that Ellis fought with Sparta between 402 and 401 BC. We don't know much about this time in Phaedo's life, or even for sure if this was the right war. It's it's all a bit iffy here. What we do know is that Phaedo was a remarkably beautiful youth, and he fell into the hands of an Athenian slave trader who immediately knew a windfall when he saw one which is awful. Fucking gross, but true. Well, you know, we saw this last season or two seasons ago when we talked about Dionysus, you know, who was trying to book passage to go somewhere. And the people who he was, who he paid to take him, I can't remember if it was Naxos or where he was going. The pirates, you mean? The pirates, yeah, but he didn't know they were pirates at the time. He paid them to take him somewhere, and they were like, hey, he is so beautiful. He is so beautiful. We could get so much money for this guy. And I bet if you happen to be a remarkably attractive person who had fallen on hard times, this is what everybody's thinking when they see you, is like, oh my god, I could get so much money if I sold you somewhere. Like, that's really fucked up. That's what happened to Fado. So... Fado was forced into prostitution. This was not consensual. He was basically trafficked. He wound up working in Athens, probably like as a poor eye for a few years. Possibly. We don't know exactly how long it was. Fado had to have been basically a child when some of this was happening. Remember, male beauty in ancient Greece had a very small window of time, and it ended when the boy started to visibly age into manhood. And like we said, this was also the situation with girls. It's just girls had a longer career arc. So... At some point, Phaedo met the philosopher Socrates, who may or may not have existed. Giant rabbit hole, not going down it right now. For the sake of the story, we're going to just assume he existed. It's not clear exactly how these two met. Some accounts say that one of Socrates' influential friends took a shine to Phaedo and bought his freedom. According to the Suda, which was a kind of medieval dictionary that definitely existed long after all these events happened, centuries after, but apparently drew from ancient sources, many of which have since been lost, Phaedo found himself accidentally in a conversation with Socrates and pleaded with the philosopher to free him. Once he was freed, Phaedo fell in with the philosopher crowd. He hung out with Plato and Socrates and other philosophers. Plato's most famous dialogue, Phaedo, is named after him. The Phaedo is all about the immortality of the soul, and its setting is during the death of Socrates. Socrates was condemned to death for not believing in the city's gods, and 
for corrupting Athenian youth. So in the Phaedo, Phaedo of Elis is Socrates' student and the point-of-view character narrating the great philosopher's death. Socrates died in 399, and it's believed that Phaedo was probably present, if Socrates even existed at all, which is a whole rabbit hole that we're not going down right now, but might go down to Patreon, but I can't promise that. We don't know if Socrates existed. We have no idea. But it's quite likely that Phaedo of Athens did exist. Athenaeus claims that Phaedo and Plato actually hated each other and that Phaedo strongly denied that he agreed with anything in the Phaedo. He didn't like that document of Plato's. He hated that he was in it. He just hated everything about it. So Phaedo did not stay in Athens long after Socrates' death. He moved back to Elis and founded a philosophy school of his own, teaching many prominent philosophers. He was believed to have written several dialogues, none of which have survived. One scrap of Phaedo's wisdom has survived, however. It comes to us from Fuck You Seneca, who was Roman. Remember, Seneca's Roman. He's Roman and he's from the time of Agrippina the Younger and Nero. This bit of Phaedo's wisdom is quoted in Seneca's epistles, or letters from a Stoic, written to a friend of his who was a procurator of Sicily. Seneca is talking about the benefit of knowing a great man, even when he doesn't say much. The benefits of knowing great people tend to rub off on you. And this is the quote, quote, We are indeed uplifted merely by meeting wise men. And one can be helped by a great man even when he is silent. I could not easily tell you how it helps, though I am certain of the fact that I have received help in that way. Beto says, Quote within the quote, Certain tiny animals do not leave any pain when they sting us. So subtle is their power, so deceptive for purposes of harm. The bite is disclosed by a swelling, and even in the swelling there is no visible wound, end of quote. End of quote within the quote. This is still Seneca. That will also be your experience when dealing with wise men. You will not discover how or when the benefit comes to you, but you will discover that you have received it. So just to be very clear, Phaedo didn't say any of that shit about great men at all. The only part of what Seneca quoted that is actually from Phaedo is the stuff about insects. That is all. It's just about insects. That's all we have from what Phaedo wrote. It's just because Seneca quoted it because he wanted to take it out of context and use it to make his own point. That's it. That's all we've got from Phaedo is this bit about when some tiny animals sting you. You don't even know they have stung you. There isn't even a visible wound. All you can see is like a little bit of a swelling, essentially. He's talking about a mosquito bite. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about mosquito bites. He might have been using that to make another point about something else or maybe a similar point to what Seneca was saying. Or maybe he was just talking about insects. I have no idea. Why did I include this, Jen? (laughs) Oh, could you tell me? Well, I think, number one, it was really important to include a male sex worker who was operating at the same level as the female hetire because it wasn't just women. And also, it shows the connection between the hetire and philosophers. There was a connection there. Absolutely. I mean, philosophers were kind of like a little bit on the outskirts as much as they were like elevated and thought leaders. Being a philosopher in ancient Athens, I'm not 100% sure about this, but it may have been kind of disreputable. A lot of them were kind of on the margins, but also they loom so large in the way that we see ancient Athens that it's kind of hard to believe that it seems to be true. Like they were kind of marginal figures. Like I get the impression that these were kind of like they were edgy figures in ancient Athens. That's kind of what I get, but I could be wrong. 
what I was going to say is don't conflate philosophers of ancient Greece with the philosophers of ancient Rome. Like the Stoic Seneca is possibly not the same as, you know, Socrates, who was on trial if he existed for corrupting the youth. Like that is not what happened with someone like Seneca or Cicero, who was like a philosopher and statesman. But you know what I mean? Like these men who we sort of look at their writings, they're not the same. Not that I've done a massive course in philosophy. Please don't at me. I'm not going to reply. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Like, And I also think that Phaedo of Ellis really shows that connection um, between sex workers and philosophers. So it was important to get him in here. Like a lot of Hatire were known for their intelligent conversation. And that would have made them like it's clear from this story. That a hetera, or a, how do you say that when it's a dude? Like a hetero? I don't speak ancient Greek. It would be hetero or heterum. But the hetere that you're you're actually pronouncing is not Greek. It's the A-A is definitely Latin. But like the male sex workers who were at this, you know, courtesan level, number one, they existed. And number two, there was this connection between philosophers and courtesans. They were known for their intelligent wit and their sparkling conversation, and they could hang with the philosophers and impress them. They were that smart. They were that intelligent. They were that cultured. So... Let's talk about our next and last for this episode, Hatira. Phryne, the courtesan. We've reached Phryne. Phryne! And I just want to say that her name, I feel like it, we've talked about her in previous episodes where it sounds like we're saying Phryme, F-R-Y-M-E. That is not what we're saying. We're saying Phryne, P-H-R-Y-N-E. And this is my favorite, favorite courtesan. I love her. She's so fascinating. So... Phryne is the one who made me interested in covering this topic to begin with. And it all started, I know I've told this story before, but I'm just going to tell it again. It all started when I was walking in the garden at the Achilleon in Corfu, which was the home of the Empress Elizabeth of Austria, or Sisi, to her friends. And this lady was absolutely obsessed with the Iliad. I mean, who wouldn't be? No, but she's really obsessed with the Iliad, Jen. Like, not just the normal amount, but, like, next level obsessed with the Iliad. I feel like Liv would would really agree with this garden. Liv from Myth Baby would agree with this. But I would go so far as to say I'm here for Team Hector. I think that Cece was an Achilles fan. She had this extremely extra garden with a giant 50-foot-tall statue of Achilles in it. I will try and find my photos from there so we can put them into the notes and on the social. Anyway, so that is the Achilleon. And when we were wandering this extremely Achilles-focused garden, there was also a decidedly uh, more modest and human-sized statue tucked into a corner of a beautiful lady who turned out to be Phryne the courtesan. And she had a very informative informational plaque, which I read because I love me an informational plaque, Jen. You know what I'm like. I'm like, I have to read the informational plaque. And Jenny had visited this before I got there. So like when I got there, she took me to see it. And literally when Jenny took me to see this, we had just launched the podcast. We were on like War Elephants Part 2. And I saw the plaque because she showed it to me. And then she literally had already pulled up on her phone the Wikipedia entry. So I could like read about this because there was so much more to the story. Okay, so I'm going to tell you all about Phryne. Actually, you are because I gave this paragraph to you. (laughs) Take it away, Jen. Phryne was born in 371 BC in the town of Thespiae. Her name at birth was not Phryne. It was Meserite, which means commemorating virtue. 
It's said that the year Phryne was born, the army of Thebes raised her hometown to the ground and drove out everyone who lived there, including her father, Epicles. It's not clear if the family relocated to Athens after that, or if Phryne came there by other means. But sometime in the 300s BC, she moved to Athens and became one of the most sought-after courtesans in Athens. The name she chose to go by, Phryne, meant toad in Greek. Like, I love this about her because toad was a slur often used to refer to sex workers in ancient Greece. And you see this with a lot of the sex workers that we have covered previously. Like, they all have, like, you know, a sex worker name which is like rosy cheeks or some kind of alluring name that isn't the name that they were born with. And Phryne chose Toad as her sex worker name, which is just so badass. It just kills me. So she was said to be stunningly beautiful. So beautiful, people thought she might be a demigoddess or some kind of high priestess beloved of Aphrodite herself. Wherever she went, people dropped what they were doing and stared. Her beauty was absolutely legendary and possibly divine. That's what everyone thought. The Greek rhetorician Athenaeus tells us that she was beautiful on all parts of her body, even the parts normally not seen by people. Quote, for she used to wear a tunic which covered her whole person and she never used the public baths. So this is really interesting because one quality of sex workers in ancient Greece was that they're usually depicted naked in art. But Phryne was militant about not letting anyone see the goods before they paid. Or maybe this is about maintaining her dignity. Who knows why she apparently dressed pretty modestly for a hetera. This frustrated her legions of fans who were no doubt trying to see her naked and probably not trying to pay for that privilege. Yeah, they were all just like, God, Phryne, why don't you just show me a little skin? And she's like, fuck you, no. We've already taken you on that journey from Pornai, who had to stand naked in the streets, to Hatira. I'm sure you grasp the significance of this. However, one time on one special day, the Elysian festival during the feast of the Posidonia, something to do with Poseidon, I suppose, Phryne went down to the beach, took off her garments, and laid them neatly aside, undid the splendor of her glorious hair, and then walked into the sea to bathe. The sight of it shook the city because apparently she did this on a very public beach where everyone was looking. It moved the people so much that we're literally still talking about it today. And it inspired iconic imagery that repeated itself over and over in classical and later more modern art traditions. Apelles the painter, a renowned artist who once painted Alexander the Great, was one of the people who saw Phryne bathing in the sea. He was inspired to paint a portrait of Aphrodite Anadomini, that is, Aphrodite rising from the sea, based on this event. The motif of Aphrodite rising from the sea would repeat itself well into the medieval and renaissance periods, basically unchanged from the classical period, from what I can see. And I want to do a Patreon episode about the art of Phryne to delve into that connection more. I don't know a huge amount about the art of Phryne yet, just the basics that are in this section, but I'd like to delve into that more. So one of Phryne's lovers, the sculptor Praxiteles, created the Aphrodite of Nidus using Phryne as a model. This was the first statue of a nude woman ever made in ancient Greece, and the statue's proportions would go on to set the standard for female beauty that would repeat throughout Western art up until the Renaissance and beyond. Praxiteles used Phryne as a model for many famous sculptures, 
Athenaeus tells us that he inscribed words on the pedestal on a famous statue of Eros he created with Phryne as a model. Quote, Praxiteles has devoted earnest care to representing all the love he felt, drawing his model from his inmost heart. I gave myself to Phryne for her wages, and now I no more charms employ nor arrows, save those of earnest glances at my love. Praxiteles was really wrapped around the axle over this woman. He was smitten. It's said that Praxiteles offered Phryne a gift of any one of his statues, and she chose this one, the Statue of Eros, and she set it up in a temple at Thespiae, her hometown. The people of her town loved Phryne so much and appreciated this gesture so much that they in turn commissioned Praxiteles to create another statue of her, of her specifically, not of a god or goddess, but of her, this one of solid gold which was set up in the temple of Delphi on a plinth of patellic marble. So this was marble from Mount Patellus, which was pure white with a golden yellow sheen, and it was very expensive. Crates the cynic, a noted cynic, said contemptuously that this statue of Phryne was, quote, a votive offering of the profligacy of Greece. But it may not be that profligate, actually. Pausanias says that it was actually just made of gilded bronze, and most scholars believe this is more likely. I don't know why. Maybe because it's just more realistic. I don't know. But it was a very gaudy statue of Phryne in the Temple of Delphi. Good for Phryne. So we mentioned in an earlier episode how many courtesans set up large statues or monuments to themselves in prominent places, often at temples and religious shrines, to the consternation of the respectable populace. People seem to have seen this sort of like statues and beef spits as an act of hubris and also generally as a sign of an utter lack of class and they were possibly being disrespectful to the gods but the hetaria still did it because fuck those assholes i'm giving you all the beef spits and also why don't you make a statue of me whatever your flex is just go big or go home it's take your beef spits to work day let's take your beef spits and be grateful fuck you so franny had many lovers Mostly prominent artists and philosophers and orators of ancient Athens, and Athenaeus refers to all her lovers as parasites. But Phryne was also extremely selective. One suitor apparently said of her, quote, But I, unlucky that I was, fell in love with Phryne in the days when she was picking up capers here and there and did not yet have all the wealth she has today. And in spending huge sums for each visit, I came to be excluded from her door. I mean, that's a totally Phryne way to operate. It's like, you can pay a whole lot of money, I still might not let you in. So this is definitely a way that a Hatira could operate, rejecting some suitors regardless of how much they paid to maintain that reputation of exclusivity and further boost their rates, because you know what, girl's got to make her retirement in the next few years, so that's what's got to happen. She's got like four years to make that retirement. She's got to really hustle. So wherever she went, people fell at Phryne's feet. However, according to Diogenes Laertes, a biographer of ancient Greek philosophers, there was one person she couldn't seduce, Xenocrates, a philosopher and a student of Plato, said to be very serious and solemn and absolutely no fun. This dude was not someone you wanted at your wild symposia. According to Diogenes, quote, And once Phryne the courtesan wished to try him, and pretending that she was pursued by some people, she fled and took refuge in his house, and he admitted her indeed because of what was due to humanity. 
And as there was but one bed in the room, he, at her entreaty, allowed her to share it with him. But at last, in spite of all her entreaties, she got up and went away without having been able to succeed in her purpose and told those who asked her that she had quitted a statue and not a man. No means no, Phryne. No means no. Stop morriganing this guy. She's totally morriganing him. She's like, what, you won't fuck me on the battlefield? <laughs> All right, bitch, there'll be dire consequences for you. This is actually Kukulin. It's in our Morgan episode. So eventually, Phryne succeeded in earning her retirement nest egg. She was so rich that she once made an offer to pay for the walls of Thebes to be rebuilt when they were destroyed in 336 BC by Alexander the Great. And there is some irony here. Note the irony. Since the Thebans were said to have destroyed her hometown of Thespiae. Irony. So Phryne offered to rebuild the walls of Thebes on the condition that the new walls would have this inscription. Quote, destroyed by Alexander, restored by Phryne the courtesan. Fuck. Yeah! I mean, they turned her down. Well, they were wrong. Have your wall back. Fuck you. That's how I interpret this whole inscription. So, perhaps the most well-known episode of Phryne's life was her infamous trial. Here's how Athenaeus describes it. Quote, Before our time, the thespian, Phryne, was far the most famous of all courtesans. And even though you're later than her age, still you have heard of the trial which she stood. She was accused on a capital charge before the Heliaea being said to have corrupted all the citizens, but she besought the judges separately with tears and so just saved herself from judgment. So at some point in her life, Phryne was put on trial for mm, something. It's very vague. What we get from the ancient sources is that she was corrupting the citizens of Athens or... Maybe she was offending the gods? I don't know. There's some suggestion of impiety here. And this may be the same charge that Socrates got hit with, which was about corrupting the youth and being impious. I suspect that it was because Socrates was arguing something about atheism or agnosticism, which would have been offensive. I don't know that Phryne would have been doing that, but who knows. But apparently the penalty seems to have been death. It's vague but serious. There are two different versions of this story, and both appear in Athenaeus's account. In one, Phryne pleaded with the judges one by one, clasping their hands and winning their sympathy with tears, but the other is a bit more drawn out and dramatic. According to the story, Phryne's lawyer was the renowned orator Hyperides, who was also her lover because, you know, two for one. So Hyperides made an impassioned speech in her favor, using all his most polished, rhetorical arts, but it failed to move the judges. So just as they were about to condemn her, Hyperides brought Phryne before the judges, tore open her tunic, boobs, and displayed her naked breasts for all to see. Time to haul out the big guns. I mean, that has saved me many a time. Like, this is how I resolve all conflicts. If I happen to be at the bank, boobs. I mean, no, no. Clearly, this is not an ancient history fangirl life hack. We're just kidding. Listen, I've been thrown out of a lot of buildings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I've never tried this. <laughs> I should, though. Now I'm thinking I should. People will be like, oh, my God, is she a priestess of Aphrodite? Probably. So the judges were awed by Phryne's beauty. It was so otherworldly that they thought surely she must be a demigoddess or maybe a prophetess or... 
a priestess of Aphrodite. They were moved to pity and felt a superstitious fear of condemning to death someone who was so beautiful that she must be goddess adjacent or at the very least favored by Aphrodite. So Phryne was acquitted, but afterwards a decree was passed that orators or defense lawyers were hereby not allowed to use their arts to inspire pity for their clients. And furthermore, no defendants were allowed to be present while the judges decided their cases, but prosecutors could totally just leverage bigotry all over the place. That was still fine. There are doubts about the truth of Phryne getting acquitted through boobs, although how else are you going to get acquitted in the ancient world, let's be real. Scholars point out that in the earliest account of this event, which dated from around 290 BC, Phryne's boobs did not make an appearance at her trial. This was the account of Posidippus, the comic poet, who would have included such a salacious detail if he'd heard it, you'd think. So it's more likely that the boobs-out strategy of defense lawyering was a later invention that wound up getting adopted by overly credulous later biographers such as Athenaeus, and his account dates from the early 200s AD, so like several hundred years after the fact. So why is Phryne important, Jen? Why do we love her so much? Oh my god, I love her so much, Jenny, because she maintains this, like, mystique around her body, what she looks like under the tunic. She's got this agency of, like, I am the most beautiful woman who's ever walked the earth at this point in time, like, make sculptures of me. But also, nobody gets to see the goods until they pay for the goods. Oh no, nobody gets to see Phryne until they have paid. Yeah, and as someone who feels real strong about wearing that underwear and not having a conversation if you're naked, I feel you, Phryne. She deployed her nakedness strategically, and that's the thing about Phryne. We don't know where she came from. We don't know if she was a porn eye standing naked in the streets at one point in her life, but a lot of Hatire came from that area, so you can kind of see where her desire to not be naked in public unless someone is fucking paying for it could come from. Yeah, and I totally feel like, to me, one of the reasons your cold open was so powerful and affecting is I knew the story of Phryne, and I feel like it's true. Like, if you had come up the ranks as someone who had started their time as an enslaved sex worker who was a porn eye, you would feel real goddamn protective about who got to see your body and how much fucking money or time or whatever you wanted to get out of it that they paid you before they saw the goods. And I feel like if that's the case, if that's where Phryne's story started, she really did well in the end because nobody saw her body unless she wanted them to. She took off her clothes at the Eleusinian Mysteries and people have been making art about it since and she took off her clothes to save her own life. Probably she did it if people paid her exorbitant sums or maybe she'd just lock you out and say, no, I know you paid for it, but no. Like, and that's how she exercises her agency when she has this in her background. She's like, I'm fucking never standing naked in the street again. I control who sees me naked. Strategic nakedness. That is the Phryne way. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where it is really difficult as modern particularly women in this instance, but as a modern audience to imagine what it would have been like to stand naked in the streets for the appraisal of men walking by and to be on display to anyone walking by, women, children, whatever. And if you started your life in that position, to be able to be Phryne, to be able to make so much money you could rebuild the walls of Thebes, like to come from a bit where you have no agency over your body to offer that to the city where you came from. It's just incredible. There are many things that I love about Phryne. One of them is that she takes the horror of the horror of the horror 
that we've explored in depth of being a porn eye, and she turns it on her head and makes it her power. That is so strong to me, and I, I love that about her, and I think it's also a real savvy business decision. Like, this woman was a businesswoman. Like, she is creating a sense of exclusivity that is almost goddess-adjacent. Like, she's building that legend around herself. The reality is there is so much there that is legendary and epic and beyond blowing up in a legend that I feel like, to me, I want other women and girls to experience a sense of pride in the legend of Phryne in the same way we feel pride in the legend of other male heroes. There's a great book to be written about Phryne. But like, yeah, I think it seems like the people that she chose as lovers, a lot of them were, you know, artists who are going to immortalize her and build up her legend further. And she's also maintaining her bodily autonomy. Like she's not letting everyone get a peek and a grope and a squeeze of her body. She's very much like, no one knows what's under this tunic and I'm never going to show it to you. If you are not on the very carefully cultivated list, that list included like sculptors and really famous people who may or may not have been her friends and in her employ to encourage that legend. So those are the stories of five famous sex workers of the ancient world. But Jenny, we've left someone out, and she's perhaps the most elite hetera of them all, a long-term partner of a leading Athenian statesman, darling of the philosophical set, survivor of the plague of Athens. She threw her own parties too, and they were the best parties ever thrown within a hundred-mile radius of Athens. No one has done better since. What was her name? Her name was Aspasia. You may have heard of her. We'll be telling you her story in the next episode. So that's it for this week. Join us next week for another installment of whatever we're talking about next, which is probably Aspasia, because we built it up to be Aspasia. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. For as little as $2 a month, you can get regular episodes a day early and ad-free, plus extra special bonus episodes. If you can't support us on Patreon, you should rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we have some very special Patreon members to thank. We do. So, blanket apology to anyone whose name we mispronounce. We cannot pronounce words. I'm sure you've noticed this if you've listened to our podcast. Patreon members we have to thank are Justine McDonald, Matthew Linker, Katrina Farley, and Jennifer Dine. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in a week. (laughs) 